Welcome back to another episode of the Cornell Thank You Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Michelle. And I'm Stephanie. And we just had a fantastic conversation that you're not going to want to miss with Lou Diamond. And he just told us how his Cornell education influenced his career from consultant to now a CEO. Absolutely. And and I also am excited for everybody to hear how he worked so hard to connect when he hit the campus and how he has made an entire career out of that experience too. I totally agree. Let's roll the intro. Welcome to the show, Lou Diamond. I am so excited to be here, Michelle and Steph. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to have a lot of fun, aren't we? That's what you told me. At least that's what I signed up for, right? <laughs> we promised fun and we will deliver. I'm very excited about that. If we can deliver equal energy, I will be astounded. I have never seen anything like lose energy in my life. Well, hold on. That's not completely true. I've seen you pretty energetic after like six cups of coffee, you know, like st <laughs> standing on the side of a softball field or running up and down and telling me about like 16 people that you ran into. Absolutely. I mean, Michelle has that kind of energy. And I can only imagine having, you know, being familiar with Steph for all these years that you guys probably feed off each other. No, we do for sure. Yes. You Much know, to our, everyone's dismay. Our <laughs> listeners will notice that Lou has quite the podcast professional voice. Um, and we're going to get to what you do now um, and all of the success that you've had in this realm um, later on. But we want to get back to the early days of Cornell where um, it all started. Should we have like background music right now playing that says, you know, like almost like, like old violins, like you went to the Lower East Side, you <laughs> exactly. know, checking out what it was like yeah. in Cornell? It probably it's would have to be like a, like an early hip hop or maybe like an REM soundtrack would probably be perfect. More no. It could be that. It could also just be the Cornell chimes. There you go. And oh, that would make that. sense too. too. That would be good. So back to the early days. I mean, uh, you know, it's it's really funny because um, it is such an integral part of my life, Cornell. And I'm still so actively involved with the school that that I still think I'm the same age as I was when I first arrived there. Whenever I go on campus, you know, that expression, like, you know, only you get older, but everybody else stays the same. Well, well. I, I'm pretty sure that's how it is in my mind. So, you know, as you mentioned it, I like I'm instantly in in gear. You know, I could literally like place myself in, my, you know, sophomore, junior, senior year, whatever it might be. And, and, and I'm there, which is always a lot of fun. And uh, and, it, and it also brings like a warm feeling back to me, which is something that's so like so I run into somebody that's from Cornell. I am always like doing my math. Okay. What year were you there? When were you there? Who did you know? What, you know, all that stuff. And it, and, and that's such a wonderful thing that I'm sure anyone has at their own university, but they don't have it quite like we do. Yeah. What year yeah. did you graduate? I'm, I'm a, I'm a little younger than you guys. I was 92, oh. but, but that's, you know, that's because, you know, you guys all are 25, you know? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you straddled the late eighties, early nineties. That is correct. Yeah. Okay. And so I want to ask you something, because I do feel like you immersed yourself in the Cornell culture day one, and it is, as you say, ongoing. There's never a day that Cornell isn't somehow involved in your life. Did you foresee that as a high school student or earlier? Yeah, well, no, and that's actually probably a good way to, to kick things off, because um, I got accepted Cornell as a sophomore. I was a transfer. So I actually was at the University of Vermont when I started, and I did give it a chance, like, because Vermont was definitely a very fun school back then. And uh, 
but there were so many, so many reasons why, like, you know, I always had that in the back of my head that that's where I was going, but, you know, socially and all that stuff, I wanted to make it like a really good freshman year, which is what I did. And then I came over and, and change, which is something I always hated in my life. I'll, I'll shout out to my parents. Like my parents moved me right when I went to high school to where I went to high school, which is in Long Island. And, uh, and, and I, I, didn't talk to them for like a good year because like, you know, when you move, when you're like 14 years old, you're like, want to kill them. Uh, <laughs> so I didn't like change. So here I was like not starting out at the place that I was at, but I always knew I wanted to be there. Um, and I also think that I worked unbelievably hard socially and academically because I was a transfer student. I always felt like I was catching up. I always felt like I was trying to um, socially figure out where I needed to be, um, academically try and understand what it was like to be, be a student there. And I, I'll let you know that I am in my hiring years after I graduated Cornell in many different industries, I would go back and recruit at Cornell and I would love transfer students. I'm like, oh, I like these people because they always are working hard. But <laughs> uh, that being said, I, I, I was actively social and I'm a very outgoing, energetic person as you've hinted to. So connecting with people there was awesome. And I found my own little tribe of people pretty quickly and, and couldn't, couldn't be more excited about um, every single day that I would go to school there. That is the truth. It was like, as a student specifically, like the, the, no matter how far you had to walk and no matter how cold and rainy it was, it did not matter to me. You know, I'm like, hey, we're here, I'm in it. And make it clear, the advantage of going to University of Vermont my freshman year made Ithaca weather actually delightful. So, which, which is something that most people would never agree with. So it's Ithacating outside, right? So you show up as a sophomore, Lou, and um, how do you get in, at least in the social scene? That's not easy to do. So, I mean, I remember meeting people in orientation uh, a week, which now they call it, right? Which is, uh, you know, you met a lot of people who were like the the sophomores were usually the people who were like the group leaders. And there were a lot of other transfers that also came in. Cornell's pretty big into that. Um, I met people that were in my major who also came in from other schools and they do it more now, but people who like were in one college at Cornell and then they'd like, you know, transfer majors or change that. Now they're actually involved in like a lot of the orientation stuff. Um, I'll talk about that as we progress down the timeline here with you guys, but uh, getting to meet people there was the first part. And interestingly, um, you're also, I started a little bit older. Um, I also had to try to make a decision on, did I want to get in, to, involved in Greek life? Did I want to deal with, deal with that stuff? But I also just wanted to get to meet people. And when I came in as a transfer, I actually, um, so that went into the dorms in West Campus, which was weird because I was like a sophomore living with freshmen, which was kind of strange. But I also, it makes a lot of sense because I'm a, a friends with a lot of freshmen from that year in my life. That's actually the group of people I was uh, closest with growing up after college. Which dorm was that? Six, the old, uh, you know. U-Haul yeah. 6, which no yeah. longer exists. By the way, what, what is in the space where the U-Hauls right now is amazing. If you if anyone who's been there recently, these newer buildings are gorgeous. They're like oh unbelievable. Yes, totally agree. U-Hauls were, were, but it did, it did put me closer to some really, really good food, which I'm sure we're going to talk about in the speed round about this, which I've, I've got my own particular love for. Uh, and College Town, of course. And I lived in, and so that's how it started. And that was my, my, my initiation into Cornell was that, but then just going out and always meeting people in the major I was in, which was now called Dyson, a lot of, you know, obviously in the Cal's school. And then 
anything I could possibly think of anytime I had a sport or play stuff and deal with all that. And actually that was maybe the next thing that we should talk about is that I actually played club volleyball for Cornell when I, when I went there. So it was actually something that I could always jump really high, not anymore, but I used to be able to jump really <laughs> high. And uh, so I, so I um, played on the team which was a lot of fun. I did that sophomore, junior, and senior year. I didn't know there was a club volleyball team. Did you, Michelle? There, well, there was no varsity team. There was a lot of clubs. Ah, in, in, so the club team must have been pretty good. We were pretty good. Um, and we had some unbelievable weekends. We would go, usually the way they would do it is you would go to one school who would host everybody and it'd be like these crazy round robin tournaments. Uh, I, we went to uh, to Brown and I remembered it was not just, it was like every every division one, one A school, one A school that, they didn't have division one volleyball uh, for men. They had, they had it for women, but not for men. So we got to play in those events. And we also played a lot with the, the Cornell women's team as well. So um, wow. sophomore and junior year, I was definitely more active with it. And it, was, and it was really hard to play college volleyball in club level. I can't even imagine what it would be like to play varsity level at that extra level above it. I, I see these student athletes and my head just spins on how you can balance an Ivy League education in a club. It was hard enough to do it that way, so. A huge commitment. Let me ask you something. You said that it was a huge commitment. What do you think it was like to be an intramural athlete like Steph and I were? We played <laughs> sorority football and sorority basketball and sorority ice hockey. Okay, so so I'm going to say this, and, and I happen to know that Michelle has incredible athletic prowess, so Steph, I can only imagine the same. Uh, <laughs> what, I, what I will tell you is that that I played, I played for Cornell Club, and that uh, my senior year enabled me to play intramural sports for my fraternity in volleyball because they used to be very strict about that that if you played for a varsity or a club team but they changed it my senior year that the club kids can play and that was the coolest thing because we got to win the volleyball uh, title that year but i oh, but nice. let me make it clear intramural sports was awesome that was the most fun <laughs> part of of like playing you know playing basketball in the fraternities and i loved it because you know the ability to blow off steam have fun doing it uh, it was very competitive. They, you know, isolated us against, we played against a lot of our friends from different houses or other teams or whatever it was. It was a ton of fun. So I, I, I loved it. I, I thought, I think intramurals is like vital for any student at school. Play something and play a sport that you might not even be good at because it's just a great chance to just be physical and athletic and have fun while doing it. Exactly. Social, very social. Absolutely. So you ended up rushing, obviously, and joined a fraternity. I did. I uh, joined the Pi Kappa Alpha fraternity and uh, and was very active in the house as well. I got to, I, I would tell you right now, I literally spoke to two fraternity brothers today who I still am closest friends with from that uh, group of people. And whenever we see each other, it's like time has stopped. We've all gotten bolder and heavier, but we, we do get together and it's literally like the humor level just clicks right back in right away. That's by far my favorites. The best. So that was your sophomore year experience. You killed it. And take us through a little bit more of um, maybe what you studied and how that led into what you're doing now. So, yeah, so I was in what they called AGEC back then. I think it went, what, AGEC, Army, then AIM, then Dyson, if you've followed anyone who knows the Cornell um, agricultural 
program uh, for, for applied economics and business management and marketing. Simple, single-handedly the longest major name you could ever have. <laughs> so they just shortened it now to Dyson, which is the undergraduate business program. An amazing program. And I will let you know that I was also a minor in communications. And there's some irony to that today because I, I after I, I went into Cornell and I knew that I wanted to connect with other businesses. And I say that I, I didn't know exactly what that meant and how important that would be in, in my career, but I knew that I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. Um, and I figured the way that I was going to learn what I wanted to do was to do consulting. And uh, at the time it was Anderson Consulting, now it's Accenture, was the path that I, that I led to. And it was that, and then I actually worked at Accenture, then I worked at Deloitte, and I had about a seven year window working in professional services. And where I learned my, you know, how to, how to clean some floors and maybe learn a respect about a home, I, I learned respect about business and companies and professionalism and communication uh, in the consulting world, because I think the combination of what you learned in communications at Cornell paired with the business and, and, and finance and marketing tools that I needed to get an understanding, it was that combination that eventually shaped the roles that I played in my career. And those careers were kind of a ongoing learning in consulting when I left Cornell, but merged into three different avenues thereafter. Um, the, the first was when the internet came out, uh, literally it was built. I ended up working for the first firms that were building all the websites and they needed professional consultants. I worked for a company called Organic and we built the first websites that ever existed, but they needed a professional services group to help figure out how to do that. So that was marketing and communications paired together. Um, I did it for mostly the world's largest financial services firms. Goldman Sachs, Solomon Brothers, et cetera, all those places, which was where I worked when I was at Deloitte and, and Accenture doing that type of work when I was at Organic, which actually led me to work for one of my fraternity brothers who ran fixed income for Merrill Lynch. Huh. And I ended up working on Wall Street for Merrill Lynch for 12 years, which was basically now taking that financial services component, but I was in sales. I basically was in this marketing division that helped to sell these instrumental products. I had to communicate effectively how you can buy these certain products and how it would help you. And I did that for a very long time, for about 12 years. Wow. And then after, after that, I ended up realizing that I needed to help everybody else understand because I found a unique way to connect all these things together. And from that, that third avenue of my career spawned off, which was I ended up spawning my company called Thrive, which you guys can see behind me. And Thrive is about helping leading businesses and brands learn how to thrive through connecting. I'm still taking those communication skills that I learned at Cornell. I am still learning all that business piece that I had from in there. And I'm still taking that way that I learned how to connect with a network of people from the minute I transferred onto that campus to try to figure out how to connect with everybody and help other people do it. Because there is so much power in when we connect with others. And it's helping sales teams better connect to their intended targets. It's helping marketers better connect their message. It's helping leaders better connect to their people. I give back on all of this to bring this full circle to you guys to make your podcast listeners go, how did this all happen? And where do we go from Cornell? I go back to Cornell and I teach two classes. One is the communication uh, in a media communication class where I go in and I actually go in and teach how you can connect in the business space together today, which is always changing as we're doing this via Zoom. 
And obviously when you needed to be in person, how to do interviews and how to communicate in the business space. And I do it same for the business majors because I always felt I had that hybrid between the business piece. I do the same exact course that I do in the ones in the spring, ones in the fall. And I give those, those are guest lectures. I don't do a whole course. I just do a couple of classes for them. But I always recognize that everything I've ever learned started there. It all started on how I knew how to connect with others and bring that all together. So that's my, in a nutshell, I got you from junior year to where I am now. I won't tell you how old I am, but you could do some math. Lou, I love your story because you really took what you learned at Cornell and your skill set and built with each job change to where you are now. And I'm really curious about when you decided to take that leap from working sort of in big corporate America at Merrill Lynch to saying, you know yeah. what, I'm ready to go out on my own, be my, be a founder, be a CEO. So, so it's important to also recognize even when I was at Accenture, Deloitte, Organic, and Merrill, I ran recruiting for all of those places in the divisions I was in for Cornell. Like I would always go up and recruit on campus. And by the way, every year they had to go, who are you recruiting for this year? Like, what's the story? And I mean, obviously I did it for Merrill for the most time. It was Merrill and then Bank of America. In 2000, after the financial crisis of 2008, where a lot of things and people fell off the cliff, it turned out in the world that I worked in, in this special unique group, we were the busiest. 2010, 2011, when most people had left the industry because it had fallen off from where it was, that's when I was the busiest, which was good and bad. It was good because I had a job and I was, I guess, getting paid what it would be, but it was bad because it was like, you only do well when the world falls apart. Um, and I was watching round after round after round of layoffs of all these companies just you know shrinking down in size because the industry was changing and the regulations were making the businesses need to change the way that they did business and it was becoming tiring but it also was something that i that i found and i learned it from every time i'd come back up to the cornell campus and that was you would see these you'd see this transformation of hey i need to go work on wall street which was something that everybody wanted to do in some form or fashion when we were younger and, and for decades beyond to, I want to work in other industries. I want to do more entrepreneurial stuff. I want to work in technology firms. I want to work on this. And I started seeing this and I said, what's the biggest value that I have? And what do I want to be doing more? And I realized that I had connected in the world of Wall Street, but I wanted to go to other industries. I wanted to go to other spaces and take the lessons that I learned throughout this whole life and help other people use it because I was a top performer in Wall Street. I was a top salesperson for several years. And it was not because I was a top salesperson, it was because I was a top connector. And I realized it was that art of connecting that I needed to tell the world about. So I wrote a book called Master the Art of Connecting. And it was through all of those experiences that really was not about all the Wall Street type of deals that I did or all the consulting deals, it was explaining how we all need to connect with one another a little bit better and how those skills can be transferred over into not just your business life, but in your personal life. And I realized I couldn't just do that in a Wall Street environment. I needed to do that on my own. So it was screaming out inside of me that I needed to be doing something that was different. And I needed others to move onward and upward, which is what Thrive means. At the end of 2013, um, I basically said, I need to do this on my own. And I started my company in uh, 2014. And that's what I've been doing ever since. So working with tons of organizations and their sales and their marketing divisions and helping them better learn how to connect. And it's weird because the world we just went through in COVID made it even more important. 
And where do we learn all those skills? Hmm. Learned it at a little place up in Ithaca where everybody needed to focus and learn the basics of all this business and communication, but also in a social environment that we can transpose and use those skills to connect to others. For sure. And would you say um, that in the environment that we have been through and are still in, would you say that your podcast has become more and more of a priority that you could connect with people that way also? Such a good segue. You are a phenomenal question asker. Aren't, aren't the interviewer, <laughs> look at you, Michelle. So when I, when I started Thrive um, and I wrote the book, I went on a lot of podcast programs um, because I also went on, oh, I did the book tour, you know, like I went on TV shows and radio shows and stuff like that. But I also went on a lot of podcast shows and, and to Steph's earlier point, uh, one, they go, wow, you have a really good voice. You, you should really host your own podcast show. And two, what a name. My God, Lou Diamond, you should, you know, you must be in lights and all this stuff. And this actually <laughs> led to when, when I created Thrive, I didn't know that Thrive would be the basis for what turned out to be a professional speaking career. Because the reality is, is that this message of connecting is what I do for a living. And as an author and, and soon to be another book coming out, uh, in helping people better connect, this is the message that I deliver to folks. But I also recognized that I knew a lot of people and wanted to demonstrate that I wanted to connect the world to these incredible folks that I have dealt with in my life. And it turned out that there was this wonderful little medium with a little microphone that people can listen to whenever they want that can put together a program that they can listen to and hear what it takes to thrive, what it takes to succeed in your life, to succeed in your business, to succeed in the passions that you care about. And I knew a lot of people that did this and I wanted to just introduce, and that's what the podcast started out to be. I wanted to bring those people to the world. I had no idea what this space would explode and turn out to. And, and not only that I would love the ability to sit on this side of the microphone and ask great questions to start conversations that build relationships that not only became something for my listeners to do, to appreciate, but became a way for me to start doing business with these people. It turned out to be the greatest marketing generator for, for marketing lead gen for my business. I would have incredible leaders of amazing companies that wanted to connect better, come on the program. And the podcast became that plus an unbelievable media forum to bring some great entertainment and great people together and get a chance for me to sit here and share my story or their story and really ask the questions to be like, what makes you tick? So Thrive Loud now is heard by over 15,000 people per episode. That is just amazing. And I know you hire Cornell students as interns for the podcast, some of which probably know your kids. Is your son there now, Lou, at Cornell? Oh, not only is my son there now, yeah. um, my daughter is there as well. So, uh, so my son is a graduating senior and my daughter is a sophomore. When you guest lecture, do they attend and do they heckle? No. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, no attending. So when you when you were recruiting, what were you looking for? Obviously, you're if someone's at Cornell, they're a good student, and I'm sure you're looking at grades. But what what kind of intangible things were you looking for? Steph, such a good question. It was it was why I loved hiring Cornellians. Um, there was a work hard, play hard mentality that Cornellians had have that is such an important aspect to succeeding in any line of business. In, from marketing, consulting, financial services, whatever it is, because there's this sense of they know they have to drill it. Like when we were there, we worked our tail off in classes and it was very competitive. There was never a sense of entitlement academically at Cornell. You had to earn it. 
And I think that aspect always made people good, but they had fun while doing it. And they, they certainly did. I know we did. And, and that, and that's what we remember the most. We don't remember stressing over prelims or finals or, you know, whatever, or putting together essays, even though like we could think about it, probably lose sleep every now and then like go back in time. I'm sure you've all had that dream. Oh my God, I have an exam to do. But I would tell you that the aspect of what that makes you just like that whole pledging thing I was talking about or that hardworking thing, it puts in an element that you need to deliver and these people are going to work hard for you. So that was something I love to recruit. I agree with you, Lou, that students work really hard and hope to find great jobs. Where do you see opportunities for current students that might be different from when we graduated? It's really hard to ignore technology. And I say that in a much bigger umbrella. Um, and where I, I look at the skills that I would have had, I would still lean that there is a lot of consulting and technology that's still relevant, uh, a little different than the accounting and intro, intro to consulting type thing that happened 30 years ago. Now it is a technology focused consulting on marketing, a, a understanding how to better use the data, not how to use the technology or, or install it, which is what happened 30 years ago. Now it's how to make more money from it, how to learn more about customers, how to learn more about your business. There's so much data in the world that is integral. And these students in every line of work from the arts and science kids to the engineering kids are figuring out ways to use that data to help businesses grow, to help better understand how to target customers. That is, that is the center of where everything is going. So it's that merger of it. It's always now technology on marketing, technology and consumer products, technology and financial services. It's all uh, bridged together. And, and, and that's, that's evident in what the courses that they're teaching up there as well reflect. So Lou, are you ready for some speed round questions? I've been waiting for the beginning because I, I'm, I'm, listeners should know that I got, I got a preview of what the questions would be. I don't know what answers I'm going to come up with. By the way, we will tell you if you're right or wrong, if we disagree yeah. with you. Not... <laughs> <laughs> yes, Smart as you are. <laughs> Smart as you are, we have plenty of things to tell. Okay, where was your favorite on-campus dining? Trillium, without a doubt. Trillium, had, and they had those curly fries. You remember the curly fries? Yeah. I, I did like the place in Statler, but I ate in Trillium more, so I have to give Trillium more credit to that. And a little bit of a shout out to the Cal's campus. So there we go, Trillium. Favorite hot truck order? PMP with a little bit of mushrooms. And and I, I will tell you the little bit of mushrooms is something I added much later because I was normally a PMP guy because I was boring. But then I said, I need to add something flavor and I like mushrooms. So PMP with mushrooms. Love it. That's fair. Uh, where was your favorite place to study? It does not have to be a library. I think I, I was a, I was, I was a Uris person in that, in the, where you can see you're kind of underground and you have a view of the, you're in the slope, right? Like you're like looking out the slope. I forgot what that fishbowl fish was bowl, called. Maybe. I think it might've been called the fishbowl. Yeah. What about your favorite bar, your favorite college town bar? All right. So I worked at Ruloff's. Um, so Ruloff's was, was my favorite. My favorite to go to um, was Johnny's. So, I, so, so like, that's the, the, the thing, going to Johnny's, with the, but specifically the years that I was there where we used to take our ding letters. Remember, we used to get like, if you had five <laughs> ding letters, they would give you a pitcher of beer. And, and in the class between me and Michelle, uh, or both you guys, they, they, there were so many people that didn't have any jobs because it was a total depression that they upped it to 10. You needed 10 <laughs> ding letters and they would hang them on the wall. That, was, was, my, that, was, the, 
I literally left. I literally left working at Roloffs like at night and ran to Johnny's to get last calls. Just thinking about ding letters for one minute. I remember I did on campus interviewing for a job, and I was certain I was going to get it. And at that time, you shared phones, right? Everybody didn't have their own phone, and they were all <laughs> right. landlines. And Steph and I and our friend Liz shared a line. And I was positive. They said they're going to call between 7.30 and 8. I didn't let anybody use the phone. Never heard from them. So it was very upsetting. The whole concept of calling, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny when you think about that with phones. That literally, you had to be sitting next to it or you might miss the call. And that was it. They moved on to the next person. Absolutely. Oh, God. All right. How about uh, favorite class? I know the stock answer for this program probably would be wines. No, it is not wines. Um, my favorite, yeah, uh, that Com three hundred one class I mentioned. The, the, when I, not when I was TAing it, but when I was business in the in the class, uh, the business communication class. They finished the class. Brian Earl took everybody to that station restaurant, the one that was like the caboose restaurant, yep. um, right at the bottom of the train tracks. I don't think it's there anymore. And uh, we used to like have the dinner there, and it was like a whole the whole final was the dinner thing at that thing. It was pretty cool. So that was oh, my favorite class. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, what about, give us a quick, pithy elevator, advice to freshmen, advice to seniors. Real simple, Uh, advice to freshmen is to try everything. Do as much as you can if it's, and get out of your freaking comfort zone and try things and you might not like it, whatever, do as many things as you can. And to the advice of the outgoing seniors, take classes, that were not in your college before you graduate. One, one of, not my favorite, but one of the best, uh, I took a history class and it was like about, I'm not kidding you, it was like about economics in uh, in colonial Virginia times. And it was what? freaking fascinating. And, and it was not only fascinating, it actually helped me understand why I like the aspect of finance, but it was helped, the, the professor was great. And it was a different way of thinking. And since I was not in my major, I wasn't so concerned about it, I really learned. So seniors, Take something that's out of your major. Do everything you can while you're at Cornell as a freshman. Try everything. Yeah, but don't take that class. Um, <laughs> how about? <laughs> well, well played. Well played. Did you have a favorite part of campus, or do you have one now? So yeah, so my favorite part of campus when I come to visit uh, is still the is looking at the slope. Uh, it is it it still just gets you, um, and I'll even add the arts quad. Um, that with that, like the the combo of the original Cornell, like what that view is, it just kind of brings you back. Um, but I'm a little bit, I love going to the whole sports area now. I love it from Sholkoff to the wrestling, go see the wrestling building if you haven't been there. It's amazing. Um, the whole, there's so many more buildings on the sports side of campus up by Sholkoff that that is now my favorite. Every time I go, I go, we got to go in here and check this out. Go check out the weight room. You'd, you'd be fascinated. Um, and that includes Illini in that mix. Do you have any Cornell embarrassing moments or if not, maybe a favorite senior year memory? What's this oh. podcast rated? <laughs> <laughs> we can edit. Most embarrassing, uh, most embarrassing moment. Um, most embarrassing moment. I'll make this, this, there's, she's actually still a professor at Cornell. Professor Streeter was the, uh, she had, the email just started when I was at, at last year of school. Like we started getting emails. In fact, I had the same email. It's my Cornell net ID with the, the email. And it started at that point. So I, I never, we never sent an email before. So I just sent one really friendly to the professor. Hey, great job in class today or something like that, whatever it was, but it, it might've come off a little too friendly, like a little bit like, what's this student doing type of thing? So 
she basically like saw me like I saw her after class. And I'm like, hey, you know, you never responded to my email. And uh, yeah, she goes, yeah, it was a little bit weird. I go, and then I re read it. I go, oh my God. And I was like, was I drunk when I wrote this email? So I might have like sent an inappropriate email as the first time ever at Cornell. And I was the first one who did it. So I did apologize. To her. And years later, I apologize. She didn't remember. At least she says she doesn't. But she remembers. That was me. Yeah, she probably <laughs> Exactly. Um, okay. How about let's bring a current. Let's bring a current because we've, um, we've had a great look back, but now I, I'm dying to hear what you're doing in your life now. So give us a book recommendation, a current book. <laughs> and, I get a, and I get a lot of books because we have a lot of authors that come on the program. Um, my friend just told me um, about this. It's called uh, Backable. And Backable is by, it's by Sanjay Gupta's brother. I think it's Sunil Gupta. And it basically, Backable is really explains to you why people are willing to invest in somebody. It's like, you know, from startups and investor things, it, it's kind of cool, but that's what the book's about. It's excellent. So backable. Lou, what are you binge watching or recently been binge watched? Um, well, now I'm going to say, because I just start, uh, Ted Lasso is, is the newbie. I'm catching up on, on that. Uh, I did watch, we, my wife and I just caught up and got current with Fauda because we missed it. Like we, like everyone, everyone was crazy. So we just binged watch that. Um, unbelievable television, really unbelievable actually. So those two. And, and I'm a big fan of Money Heist. If you haven't seen that one, the Spanish one. Okay. Good, good watch. Those, those would be my three. Now, uh, present podcast excluded, what's your favorite podcast? That's an easy answer. Uh, the Rewatchables, that's Bill Simmons' podcast. He uh, goes through a rewatchable movie. I have not missed one. I literally talk about binge listened. I went back to every single one of them. I even will opine in Twitter when the thing comes out and I'll send messages to Sean Fennessy, Chris Ryan, and Bill Simmons. None of them ever respond. Um, <laughs> to, actually, that's not true. Fennessy did one time. I can't say that because because uh, if there was ever a dream, it would be for me to be on one of the rewatchable podcasts. And the one that I would ask them to do would be Airplane, which they have yet to do yet. Because I think my sisters and I have seen that movie along with Spaceballs like probably a thousand times. So yeah, rewatchables. Um, okay, one thing that you would want our listeners to know that we didn't ask you. So this is the, we should have asked you this question, but didn't, you can say what you want. Cornell related? Whatever. Like, um, <laughs> so my, my big joke was, no, I wasn't the guy that ran naked across the arts club. Um, <laughs> that wasn't me. Uh, no, so uh, I, I look, I, I would say th thing, you guys, I covered a lot of it. I, I know I yapped a lot too much here, but I knew with Michelle, I could have this forum to do that. Uh, <laughs> I would tell you the, the best lesson learned from podcasting, and I could say this to you guys, and, and, it's, and it's, it's a greatest, it's a lesson that I tell everybody in that course at Cornell too. And don't take this the wrong way. And your listeners who are listening will hear this and kind of laugh, but it doesn't matter if they listen to the podcast. It matters that they know that the podcast happened. I'll share this quick story with you, and it's a real important thing. And this is the most most valuable lesson I learned about marketing, is that content today we can there are hundreds of thousands of podcast shows, and people will see it via social or they'll see it when it gets promoted, um, but they don't always have the time to listen to it, and it might not be specifically related to what they like to listen to. It's different than a Netflix where you only have a certain amount of choices. You have umpteen gazillion things that you can listen to. Uh, I had a very famous person come on my program and I was so excited that they were on and someone came up to me and they said to me, I saw that you had this person on your podcast. 
and I said, hey, it was great. What did you think of it? And they replied, I go, well, I haven't listened to it yet, but it's on my list to do. And at first I went back and I told my wife, I said, damn it. I go, they're not listening to the podcast. They're not listening. And then I stopped and said, wait a minute, but he knew about it. Let's take advantage of that. Let's figure out, let's just keep telling everybody about it. And by the way, eventually they all started listening because everybody was saying, did you see, did you see, did you see, did you hear, did you hear, did you hear? And that component. So when it comes to, as a podcaster, um, I stopped looking at the listening levels, even though I shared that the numbers are insane. But that happened because I stopped focusing on whether they listened or not. It mattered that they knew that it happened. That's good advice. That is good advice. All right. So let's ask you first, before we ask where we can find you and, and how people can connect with you, tell us what is the one thing that you are most thankful for uh, with regard to Cornell? Oh, everything. It's everything. There, there, there is not a, there's not a moment. Look, I've got two children that are there. I've got my entire friend group from there. It is my education is there. My job network connection came from there. The people who helped to produce my podcast show are from there. Um, so there is not one thing. I'm, one of my closest friends is uh, shout out to professor Sherwin in the hotel school. Dave Sherwin is one of my closest friends. My camp counselor is part of Cornell. So this is, a place that is part of who I am. So it is everything that, you know, when I think about that higher education piece, it is such an important part of it. And now to have my kids be part of it too, only makes it that much more valuable to it. So everything. It's fantastic. It's a Lou, great tell, tell our listeners, we'll put it in our show notes, but tell our listeners how they can find your podcast, your website. And then if you could, if you're going to listen to your first Thrive uh, loud podcast. Tell us which one you'd recommend. Anywhere at Thrive Loud in social media. That's T H R I V E L O U D. And obviously, that also means you could find me at thriveloud.com. You could find everything about my business, my podcasts, all that stuff. It's all there. Um, and in social media, we're pretty active, specifically in Instagram and LinkedIn. We are everywhere there. Um, if you were to listen to one Thrive Loud episode, oh my goodness. If you were to start with one, I would let I would let it be known, and I say this to everybody. I go, just you know, you could scroll through the whole thing. It start with anyone, because uh, one of the things that I think we've been most proud about is that it doesn't. We have a lot of people in a lot of different interests and in, in areas, and they they range from all different businesses. Um, sure, there's the famous people that might be entertaining, but I'll let you know that each and every story we decode what makes that person thrive, and you will learn something from it. You will hear something different. You will appreciate something new. And I think maybe most importantly, what the show is intended to is that you will connect with another person and their story that might help rewrite yours. Well, it was great to connect with you today, Lou. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Loved it. Totally an honor. So much fun. It was our pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Truly an honor.